If you'll take your copy of the Word of God and open with me to Hosea chapter 10. We're not quite at the Luke point where it just falls open there just yet, but we'll get there. Starting in verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgments spring up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth Haven. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests. Those who rejoiced over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself should, shall be carried to Assyria as a tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on all their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them, and the nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors, therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed to pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. Well, thank you, Janelle. Uh, this morning we are continuing our sermon series in Hosea. And is everyone hanging in there so far through this book? We're about 10 weeks in. I believe, if my math is correct, I have about three or four more weeks to go um, after this morning. But I, I know this isn't like the easiest book uh, to go through together and to preach through together um, on a Sunday morning. Um, it's an Old Testament prophetic book, number one. It's filled with a whole bunch of poetry, number two. It's filled with a whole bunch of judgment, number three. And it's filled with a whole bunch of repetition, number four. And because of that, like, it's not always the easiest book uh, for us to be going through um, and preaching through here on, on Sunday morning. And, and it's challenging at times. It's challenging, I know, at times to be able to 
to read and kind of understand, like, what in the world is going on here? Where is that place? Who is he referring to? It's hard to know how to understand it, how to interpret a lot of that. At times, it's hard to know how to apply it. Like, what in the world are we supposed to do with some of these verses that Janelle just read? And so that's one of the reasons that we did want to go through a book like this on on Sunday morning, that we wanted to provide as best as we could kind of an example, a a model, just for how to approach a book like this, like an Old Testament prophetic book, and to know what to do with it, to know how to read it, to know how to properly interpret it and understand it and make sense of it, and then also to know how to properly apply it to our lives. And so you may not have picked up on this, but as we've tried to do this really over the last nine or ten weeks in Hosea, we've kind of tried three different what I would call approaches maybe to understanding and knowing how to apply a book like this, like Hosea. And so the first approach we've, we've used is what I'll just call the, the storyline of Scripture approach. And so in other words, we, we've come to a, a chapter, a passage, tried to ask the question, how, how does that passage, how does that chapter fit within the overarching storyline of Scripture? So there's 66 books in the Bible, but in those 66 books, there's one overarching story. So how does this one chapter fit within the overarching story of Scripture? And so this is the approach that we used last week, right? In Hosea chapter 9, as we talked about exile and how we saw how the, the mention of exile and the, the, the focus of exile in Hosea chapter 9 fits within this overall pattern, this overall theme of exile that we see all throughout Scripture. Another approach we've used is what I'll just call the God approach. How's that? Or the theological approach. In other words, we've come to the, a passage or a chapter, and we've asked the question, what is this chapter teaching us about God? What is this chapter teaching us about who God is, an attribute of God, a characteristic of God, and, and what he's like? And so we did this a couple weeks ago, if you remember in Hosea chapter 8, when we talked about the wrath of God. And we, that specific chapter, and it's just not Hosea 8, it's like almost every chapter in Hosea highlights that attribute of God. But in Hosea 8, we focused in on the wrath of God and, and, and looked at more specifically what, how this chapter, Hosea 8, was pointing to and what it was teaching us about the characteristic of God, the attribute of God's wrath. The third approach, and this is kind of the, the final approach that we've used, is what I'll just call the, the example of Israel approach. In other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, tells us that as New Testament Christians, that we can look back at Israel and the example of Israel and learn what not to do, right? And we can, we can use the example of, of Israel as a warning for us of how not to live and how not to follow in their footsteps. And so we've used that approach in a number of different chapters as well. And that's, that's the main approach that we're going to use this morning as we come to Hosea chapter 10. That we're going to come to this chapter and we're going to be asking the question, what do we learn here within this chapter? What do we learn from the negative example of Israel within this chapter? In other words, if 1 Corinthians 10 verse 5 is true, and if Old Testament Israel is to be an example for us as New Testament Christians of how not to live, of how not to follow in their footsteps, then what do we learn in this chapter 
about the negative example of Israel that we as New Testament Christians are to avoid in our lives. And as we ask that question this morning, when we come to Hosea chapter 10, here's here's what we're going to find out. We're going to see within this chapter four dangers, four different dangers that Israel fell into that ultimately led God to judge them and send them into exile. And as we see these different dangers, in the background, we're going to be hearing 1 Corinthians 10.5 saying, and really screaming to us, don't follow them. Be warned. Don't follow in their footsteps. Don't do what they did. Use their negative example as an example for us to be able to avoid their danger and not to follow and not to do what they did. Because if we do, then we're going we're gonna to end up just like just like they did. So, here's the first danger we're going to see. And if you have a handout or if you have it on your phone, or here's the first danger. It's the danger of prosperity. It's the first danger that Israel fell into, and the first danger that we are to avoid is the danger of prosperity. This is what we see at the very beginning. Look at verse 1 with me. Hosea is speaking here, and here's what he says. He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. And the more his fruit increased, the more altars he built as his country improved. He improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So what Hosea is saying here is that that Israel's prosperity fueled Israel's idolatry. In other words, as God showered them with blessing and more and more prosperity, then they took that blessing and that prosperity that God provided them and they used it to fuel their idolatry. They used it to feed their own idolatry. They used it to build more altars and to build more pillars so they could worship the Canaanite god Baal. They used their prosperity for idolatry. And if you think about just the whole history of Israel, right? This isn't the first time that God warned them about this. If you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you remember, Israel is on the verge of entering into the promised land. And as they're on the verge of entering into the promised land, God warns them about the dangers of prosperity. And listen to the, the warning that he gives them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 10. He says this, He says, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of your Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Like that, that's the danger right there of prosperity. There's prosperity in and of itself, it's not wrong, but Bible's pretty clear, there's a lot of temptations that come with it. There's a lot of danger that comes with prosperity. 
And one of the dangers that comes with prosperity is that it can fuel our idolatry. It can cause us to worship our stuff rather than God. It can cause us to worship other gods. It can fuel our worship of comfort, our worship of power, our worship of control. And again, having stuff, please hear this, isn't wrong. Being prosperous isn't wrong. But it's dangerous. And because it's dangerous, then we need to be careful when it comes to our hearts. We need to evaluate when it comes to our hearts and what all the prosperity and what all the stuff we have, the effect that it's having on our hearts and whether it's fueling idolatry and causing us to commit idolatry and worship stuff rather than worship God. It's the first danger we see there. The second danger then is this. It's the danger of hypocrisy. It's the danger of hypocrisy. This is what we see starting in verse 3. Look there. In verse 3, Hosea goes on to say this. He says, For now they will say, We have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? So in other words, what's going to happen is that God is going to come in and he's going to remove the king of Israel from them. He's going to take their king away. And the the time that he's going to do this is when he sends them off into exile. And their time in exile is going to feel so hopeless that even if they had a king, they're going to realize that even if they had a king, their king wouldn't be able to help them. That's how hopeless and helpless that they're going to feel during their time in exile. But but here's why God is going to take their king away from them. Look at verse 4. He says, they, they mutter mere words. They utter, excuse me, mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. So the reason that God is going to send judgment and take away their king, send them off into exile, is because he says that Israel utters mere words. He says they make covenants with empty oaths. In other words, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that Israel's relationship, their their covenant relationship with God, it's all talk. It's just words. That they say that they'll obey God. They they say that they're going to remain loyal to God. They're going to be devoted to God. They're going to be faithful to God. But but it's all talk. Like there's no follow-through. There's no action that supports their their words. Their words are just empty. They're, They're meaningless. And the reason that he knows that is because they keep saying they're going to be faithful and loyal and devoted to their covenant God, but they keep worshiping the Canaanite God, Baal. And again, right here, this is huge, right? This is danger. This is danger for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 5 says, use them as an example. Use them as a warning. This is is a danger. The danger is this big gap that exists between what we say and how we live. It's this big gap that exists between our our stated beliefs, meaning our words, and our practical beliefs, meaning our actions. And and because of that, then, it's easy, like, to just come in here, right, and and sing these songs. It's easy to come in here and pray these prayers. It's easy to make good intention commitments to the Lord and and make good intentions when it comes to our prayers to the Lord, but then for our lives to not back them up, for our lives not to follow through with what we're stating with our lips. 
And this is, this is what Hosea is, is warning against here. This, God doesn't want this. He doesn't want us just to be able to pass a theological exam with our lips. He doesn't want us just to be able to give, to be able to give all the right answers and just to be able to say all the right things and just to be able to have all the right intentions. Instead, he wants our faithfulness. He wants our lives to be faithful, loyal, and devoted to him, and not simply to be mere talk without any any action. Which then leads to danger number three, which is this. It's the danger of misguided brokenness. The danger of misguided brokenness is what we see next. Look at verse 5 here. Hosea goes on to say this. He says, The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of Beth Haven. The, the name here, Beth Haven, is specifically a reference to the city of, of Bethel in Israel. And the, the word Bethel literally means house of God. But here, within the context here in verse 5, Hosea refers to Bethel not as Bethel, but he refers to Bethel as Beth Haven. And do you know why he does that? It's not because they like change their name. Because Beth Haven means house of wickedness. And so that, that's what's happened to the city of Bethel, is that they have, they have gone from being Bethel, the house of God, to now becoming Beth Haven, the house of, of wickedness. And the rest of verse 5 then explains how they've done that. Look at the rest of verse 5. He says, it's people mourn for it. And the it here specifically have a reference to the golden calf, or the calf that he mentions at the very beginning there in verse 5. And he says, the people mourn for it. The people mourn for their their idol calf that they worship. And here's here's why. He says, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it, over its glory. For it has departed from them. The king itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame and Israel shall be ashamed of his idols. So, so do you see there why Israel is weeping over this idol calf that they've been worshiping? They're, they're weeping over it because God took it away from them. It's like a little two-year-old, right? Playing with a toy and you take that toy away and wah! You know, and goes, goes crazy and, and all those things. That's exactly what, what Israel is, is doing here. That God has taken their idol calf away from them, hauled it off into exile to Assyria, and used it as tribute to the king of Assyria. And so now when Israel sees this, they cry, they weep, they mourn. And you think about their response in terms of weeping and mourning over the loss of their idol calf, and it makes sense, right? Like this was the natural response, this is the natural reaction they, they should have had. And the reason for that is because this idol calf represented the fertility god Baal. And so this idol calf represented the one that they depended upon for rain, for good crops, for good harvest, for offspring. And then God comes in and rips it from them. And so in their mind, they're like, we're doomed. It's not going to rain anymore. We're not going to have any good crops anymore, no more harvest anymore, no more offspring anymore. We're doomed. We're going to die. We're going to be destroyed. Our idol calf that we depend upon for all these things is gone. 
But do you see here like the, the irony when it comes to Israel's, Israel's weeping here? Like what should they be weeping over? They should be weeping over their sin. They should be weeping over their idolatry. They should be weeping over their, their, their unfaithfulness and their spiritual adultery against God. But instead of being broken over their spiritual adultery against God, they're broken over the idol that God took away from them. And like that's the danger. Because that picture right there is you. Like that picture right there is, is me. Is that the danger is that we're more broken hearted over the consequences of our sin than our sin. That we're more broken hearted over what sin cost us than how our sin has offended God. We're more broken hearted over, over the idol that God takes from us than our unfaithfulness against Him. Like it's easy to mourn. It's easy to weep. But we need to make sure that we're weeping and mourning over the right thing. Which then leads to danger number four, the fourth danger, which is this. It's the danger of trusting in your own way. The danger of trusting in your own way. In verses 7 all the way through verse 10, we see more of God's punishment, more of God's judgment against Israel. In verse 7, we're not going to read these verses, but in verse 7 he talks about how Israel's king is going to perish. In verse 8, he talks about how their idolatrous shrines and their altars are going to be destroyed. In verse 10, he talks about how Israel is going to be gathered up and, and taken away into captivity. And then in verse 11, look what God says. He says, Ephraim was referring to Israel, if you remember all throughout Hosea, kind of he uses that synonymously for, for Israel here, was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow, Jacob must harrow, meaning break up the ground for himself. So it's important to catch what kind of this picture that, that God's describing here. In that day, if you had an unruly calf, then you would put a, a yoke upon, the, so this wooden beam, upon that calf's neck in order to, to gain control over it, in order to make that calf do what it's supposed to do and go where it's supposed to go and, and all of that. But if that calf was, was broken, meaning if that calf was well-trained, then it didn't need a yoke. Kind of like a dog, right? Doesn't need a leash if it's, if it's well-trained. My dog needs a leash. Okay? It's not well-trained. You don't, you don't want that dog to get out of that fence without a leash. But enough dog stories, right, Bob Reasons? Um, anyway, enough dog stories. But anyway, a calf, well-trained, doesn't need a yoke. Instead, it'd be able to thresh and it'd be able to go where it's supposed to go and do what it's supposed to do without that yoke. And so then Hosea here is saying, that's what Israel used to be like. They used to be like a well-trained calf that didn't need a yoke to be able to make them faithful and devoted and loyal and obedient to God and, and to be able to keep their covenant with God. They could be able to do that without a yoke because they were like a well-trained well -trained calf. Could obey God on their, on their own without that. The only problem is they're not like that anymore. Instead, now they're like an unruly calf. 
that is completely out of control and isn't keeping covenant with God and isn't following in his ways. And so then as a result then, God has to put a yoke upon them. And do you know what the yoke is that God is going to put upon Israel in order to get them to obey and to be faithful to the covenant and follow him? It's the yoke of exile. It's the yoke of judgment in being hauled off into exile. And because of this then, here's how Israel is to respond once this yoke is placed upon them, once they're, once they're hauled off into exile. Here, here's, here's how Israel should respond. Look in verse 12. He says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. And so this is how Israel then is to respond in order to avoid this yoke. This is how Israel is to respond in order to avoid the yoke of judgment, the yoke of exile. They're to respond by sowing righteousness, which means living in in covenant faithfulness to the Lord and His covenant. And they are to turn back and, and seek the Lord once again. And God says if they do that then, then what they're going to reap in verse 12 is steadfast love. Meaning they're going to they're reap God's loyal covenant faithfulness. They're going to reap God's covenant faithfulness to his covenant. And as a result then, God's going to rain righteousness upon them. And what that's a reference to is he's going he's to shower them with covenant blessings. All the blessings that come with Israel being faithful to the covenant that they have made with him. He's going to shower them with all these covenant blessings. The only problem, though, is that that's not what, they're, that's not what Israel's sowing. They're not, they're not sowing righteousness. They're not sowing seeking the Lord. And said, so look what they're sowing in verse 13. Look what they're sowing and plowing here in verse 13. He says, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. And here's why. Because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. In other words, they've broken God's covenant. They've gone their own way. They lived however they wanted to. And they've committed all kinds of iniquity. And as a result then, did you notice what they've reaped? They've reaped injustice. Meaning in light of going their own way, living, trusting in their own way, living how they want to, living, committing iniquity against the Lord, not obeying and fulfilling their covenant responsibilities and faithfulness to the Lord, their land now is filled with injustice all over the place. And as a result then, here's what else Israel is going to reap. Look at verse 14. He says, Therefore the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. That right there is what Israel is going to reap for a trusting in their own way, for not seeking the Lord, for forsaking their covenant with the Lord. God's going to raise up Assyria. Assyria is going to come in and destroy them and haul them off into exile, and it's going, to be, it's going to be tragic. Which again, this is an example for us, right? 
Like if you're here this morning and, and you look at this word and you're like, no, I'm going to go my own way. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do what I want to do. I, I'm going to be the captain of my ship. Then 1 Corinthians 10.5 is, is behind this, screaming to you, like, don't do that. Like, see what happened to the people of Israel as they sought to be the captain of their own ship, trusted in their own way, do what they wanted to do, and ignored the commandments and the, the laws and the, and the covenant with, with God. That the result of what happened there is that they were, they were judged, they were destroyed, and this is here to serve as a warning for us that the same thing will happen to us, the danger of trusting in your own way and saying, I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, and God, don't, like, don't think you're in my life. This is, this is what I'm going to do. Like, be warned. Like, don't think you're an except, and you're exempt from what happened to Israel here. So, four different dangers, right, that, fell, that Israel fell into here in Hosea chapter and again, as we read this, 1 Corinthians 10, 5, behind, behind us, screaming at us, don't follow them, learn from them, don't follow in their footsteps. The same thing that happened to them will happen to you if you don't avoid these dangers as, as well. It's in this way then that these four dangers then ultimately point to this one overarching truth. That these four dangers here, this, these examples of Israel here, point to this one overarching truth. This one overarching truth that we see within this passage that these four dangers are pointing us to is this. It's that you reap what you sow. Everybody catch me? You reap what you sow. That's what these four dangers are ultimately pointing us to and teaching us and showing us within this passage. You reap what you sow. So think about real quick what all Israel sowed, what all they were sowing. They, they sowed idolatry that was fueled by their prosperity, they, they sowed hypocrisy and empty talk. They sowed weeping over their idols instead of weeping over their sin. They sowed iniquity and trusting in their own way instead of trusting in God's way. And as a result then, guess, guess what they reaped? They reaped exile, they reaped destruction, and they reaped judgment. But the flip side of it is true as well. Remember verse 12, right? If they sow righteousness and live faithful uh, to the covenant, and if they return back to the Lord, and if they seek Him, then what are they going to reap? Not destruction, not exile, not judgment. Instead, if they sow righteousness, and so trusting in the Lord and returning back to the Lord, they're going to reap the Lord's covenant faithfulness. And God's going to rain down blessings upon them. But either way, here's the point, the overarching truth. Either way, they're going to reap what they've sown. And this right here, this isn't something that God just made up on the fly. It isn't just something that, that God came up with at, at this point in time of, of Israel's history. Instead, this, this was the way it was supposed to be all along. If you remember initially, when, when God entered into covenant relationship with Israel, He gave them a list of blessings and a list of curses. You can see these in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. But he told Israel, if you remain faithful to this covenant and keep this covenant, then I'm going to shower you with blessings. And here they all are. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26. But if you're unfaithful to this covenant and you don't keep this covenant, 
that I'm going to curse you in these ways. Deuteronomy chapter 28, Leviticus chapter 26. In other words, right from the very get-go of their covenant relationship together, God told them in no uncertain words, you are going to reap what you sow. But guess what happened to Israel? They, they didn't remain faithful. They, they didn't keep covenant. They couldn't sow righteousness. They couldn't sow faithfulness. They couldn't do, they couldn't do any of those things. And this is the point that we're supposed to learn from them, from their example. Neither can we. Neither can we. And so here's the $100 million question. Where does that leave us then? Because here's the point. If it's true that you reap what you sow, and we're ultimately no different from them, then what are we going to reap? Like we're doomed. If it's true that you reap what you sow, and it's at this point in our study of, of Hosea 10 that we need to stop looking at this passage from a what do we learn from Israel question or what do we learn from Israel perspective. And we need to start looking at this passage from a storyline of Scripture perspective or storyline of Scripture approach. Because if we just look at this passage from a what do we learn from Israel perspective then we're all doomed and we're all destroyed because we can't sow any better than they did. But instead, if we look at this passage from a storyline of Scripture perspective, then guess who this passage ultimately points us to? Like this passage ultimately then points us to Jesus. And, and here's how. That this passage reminds us that Jesus, that when Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus reaped what we've sown. Do you catch that? That Jesus has reaped what we've sown. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, He reaped the judgment for every selfish thought, for every lustful desire, and every sin that you and I have sown. Like He reaped the judgment that we deserve to reap by dying in our place. He reaped the judgment that we've sown. But that's not all. It's even better than that. Secondly, because of Jesus' death, we've reaped what Jesus has sown. Just, just think about that, right? Think about all that we've reaped as Christians because of Jesus' death on the cross. That we've reaped as Christians because of what Jesus has sown for us on the cross. We've reaped forgiveness. We've reaped justification. We've reaped reconciliation. We've reaped redemption. We've reaped adoption. We've reaped a future glorification. We've reaped, reaped an eternal inheritance. And here's the question, like what have you done? What have you sown in your life to deserve to reap any of those things? You haven't done jack squat. And neither have I. All that we've sown in our lives that we deserve to reap in our lives for what we've sown is exactly what Israel reaped and deserved to reap. Judgment 
and destruction. In other words, the only reason that we've reaped any of the, the blessings that I just listed off earlier is because of what Jesus has sown for us through his death on the cross, not because of what you've sown in your life or not because of what I've sown in my life. It's, it's for this reason then that the, that the gospel, like the, the good news of, of the gospel, it's not sow good deeds and reap eternal life. It's not. It, it's not do your best, try harder, give more, pray more, read your Bible more, be nice more. It's not the gospel. It's not sow good deeds and reap eternal life if you sow really hard. Instead, the gospel is no matter how much you sow and no matter how, how good you sow, it's never going to be enough. You're still going to reap and deserve judgment and destruction. And that's why Jesus came. He came to sow what you couldn't sow, and He came to reap what you deserve to reap. But, but here's the kicker in all this. All of that is true. Only, in other words, it's only true for the can reap eternal life and that you can reap entrance into God's kingdom on your own by the good works that you sow. Instead, your only hope for reaping eternal life and reaping entrance into God's kingdom is because of what Jesus has sown for you through his death on the cross and what Jesus has reaped for you through his death on the cross. This is why then when we get to the New Testament, that the New Testament talks about sowing and reaping as well. But it talks about it in a completely different way than the way the Old Testament talks about it. In other words, when we get to the New Testament and we read about sowing and reaping in the book of Galatians, specifically in chapter 6, verse 7, here's how, here's how Paul talks about sowing and reaping in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and verse 8. Paul here is answering the question in Galatians 6, and this is really important because not everybody agrees with this. But Paul is answering the question, who is a son heir of Abraham? What qualifies somebody to be a son heir of Abraham? Or another way to say it is, how is a person justified before God? How does that happen? Well, Paul uses the, the metaphor of sowing and reaping in order to answer that question. And here's what he says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. He says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The word flesh within the context here is a reference to self-vindicating flesh. It's a reference to the flesh that is trying to work themselves, work themselves to God by their own good works. And he's saying, you do that, you just trust in yourself and you sow a bunch of good works and you depend upon that to reap eternal life for you. It's not going to happen. Instead, you're, you're going to reap corruption, meaning you're going to reap destruction. You're going to reap eternal death. But he says this, But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. 
And the reference here to the Spirit is, is the reference to those who believe and trust in Jesus by faith and who therefore receive the Spirit. That those who, who sow to the Spirit, meaning those who trust and believe Jesus by faith, receive the Spirit, then they will inherit eternal life. That's the picture of sowing and reaping that we get in the New Testament. It's not sow good works and reap covenant blessings. Instead, it's sow to faith in Christ. Sow to the Spirit. Sow to trust, not in your own works, not in your own flesh, not in your own good deeds to merit salvation for you, to inherit eternal life for you. Instead, sow to Jesus. Sow to the justification by faith message in Christ, and you will receive the Spirit and it's through the Spirit then that we inherit eternal life. So we sow, to, we, sow to, we sow to faith in Jesus and we reap eternal life that, that way. Don't, don't trust in your own works to rescue you and save you. Trust in Jesus to rescue you and to save you and to reap eternal life. Not based on what you've sown, but based on what he's sown, what he's sown. And you're trusting and placing your faith and all your hope in that to rescue you for eternal life. Like, so if you haven't done that, if that's not your heart posture this morning, if you're trusting in what you can sow in your own flesh, in your own good works, then you're going to reap corruption and destruction and judgment. Instead, trust in Christ and what he's done for you and reap eternal life. For those of you who, who've done that, for those of you, and here's my of God's reality of that then, compel you now to live a life that avoids these dangers that we looked at earlier. In other words, let the reality that you've reaped what you haven't sown compel you to not use your prosperity for idolatry. Instead, let it compel you to use your prosperity for the glory of the one who has given you what you don't deserve. And let the reality that you've reaped what you haven't sown compel you now not to live a life anymore of hypocrisy and empty talk. Instead, let it compel you now to live a life in which there's no gap anymore between what you profess with your mouth and how you live with your life. And let the reality that you've reaped what you haven't sown compel you to not just be brokenhearted over the loss of an idol. Instead, now let it compel you to be brokenhearted over your sin. And finally, let the reality that you've reaped what you haven't sown compel you to stop trusting in your own way and let it now compel you now to live, live for the one who has reaped for you what you haven't sown and who has sown for you what you haven't reaped. Uh, let the reality of God's grace toward you in, in giving you what you don't deserve and reaping for you what you haven't sown compel you to live a life that avoids these four dangers that we've looked at this morning. Not so you can be saved, but as a response to the fact that you already are saved. Not through your own good works that you've sown, but through the good work that Jesus has sown that you're trusting in for you on your behalf. Why don't you stand with me? And as we do, we're going to transition from our time in the Word to, to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. That as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're coming to this table with a cup of juice that is symbolic of Jesus' blood and bread 
that is symbolic of Jesus' body that was broken for us and spilt for us on the cross. That we come to this table reminding us what Jesus has sown for us and what Jesus has reaped for us. What we could not sow and what we could not reap in and of ourselves. And that's what we're trusting in this morning. That as we follow along here and we make our way to these tables, it's our acknowledgement that this is where our hope lies. This is where, where our hope rests. It doesn't rest in the good deeds that we can sow. It rests in the, the good work that Jesus has sown for us.